This morning we continue our uh, series, Life According to Jesus. So I'm going to invite you to take your uh, Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be reading verses 38 through 42, where Pastor Jonathan will be preaching from in just a few minutes. So take your Bibles again and turn them uh, to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 this morning, verses 38 through 42. God's Word says, Ye have heard that it hath been said, An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, that ye resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law, and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him too. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. May God bless the reading of his word, and to look forward to hearing as Pastor John shares with us in just a few minutes from that portion of scripture. Well, this morning I want to start off with a story, and the story is told of a truck driver. A truck driver driving through Nebraska, and it was late one night, he was hungry and tired. So what do you do when you're hungry and tired late one night driving truck in the middle of Nebraska or in the middle of anywhere? You stop at a truck stop, right? Yeah, you, you, you stop at a truck stop. So this truck driver pulled off to, the, to this truck stop and he went in and, and uh, he was greeted by a friendly waitress and the waitress took his order. And uh, not so long after that, the waitress came back and, and, and gave him his food. A few minutes after he got his food, there's these three motorcycle riders that came in. Uh, you know, the Hell's Angel type, rough-looking guys kind of come walking in the door. And they noticed the truck driver sitting there minding his own business, just eating his, his uh, late supper. And so they decide to have a little fun with the truck driver. And they go up, and the one guy grabs the truck driver's hamburger proceeds to eat it. The next guy comes and grabs a handful of his french fries and proceeds to eat it. The next guy comes and grabs his coffee and proceeds to drink it. How do you think the truck driver responded in that situation? How would you respond in that situation? The truck driver responded in this way. He simply got up took his receipt, his check, went to the front of the little diner, left, the, left the, the check and his money by the cash register and walked out the door. The waitress who took his order followed him and, and, and came and got the money and put it in the cash register and watched out the window as he left. She, she watched him leave and turned around and came back and one of the... Um, one of the motorcycle riders said, said to him, said to her, well, he wasn't much of a man, was he? And the waitress said, well, I don't know about that, but I know he's not much of a driver because on his way out of the parking lot, he ran over three motorcycles with his truck. <laughs> and we love stories like that, right? I mean, I mean, I mean that's, that's a great story that we can all identify with because if you were in that situation, what would you do? I don't know if you just calmly walk, walk away from the situation, but uh, 
you know, we live in a world of retaliation where, where the, we want to get even. And, and not even getting even is enough. We want to get ahead. And so we, and sometimes we change the golden rule, do unto others as they would do unto you, to this. Do unto others as they do to you. You know, see, we live in this world um, where the, the world's ethic is to strike back and get even. And many times this, this idea of retaliating and getting even and seeking revenge, we use this, this principle that we're going to talk about today that we find in Scripture, an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. And we use this scripture to kind of justify that action in our lives. That justify the retaliation that we want to do when someone wrongs us. And today we're going to look at what Jesus has to say about this whole idea of retaliation. If you have your Bibles, want to turn to uh, Matthew chapter 5. Your, your Bible should probably turn to that automatically. We've been here for a while in, the, in these last uh, few weeks. Uh, but we're, we're in Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to start with verse 38. And in verse 38, it says this. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. And we're going to start by looking at this just principle. This is a just principle that, that is mentioned, that Jesus mentions here in Scripture. And again, we, we see these words, you had heard it was said. Jesus starts off the, the, the sentence there with that, and naturally, what do our minds do? Well, who said it? We ask the question, who said it? And, and when, you, when you look at this concept of an eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth, you can find this in two different places throughout history. First of all, you can find it in the Lex Talonis, which is uh, the Code of Hammurabi of, of Babylon law, written a few hundred years before Mosaic law. They had this concept of an eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth. They called it the law of retaliation. And so as you look through history, you, you, you can track it back to that code of Hammurabi and Babylon law. And then a few hundred years later, we see in Mosaic law, we see the same concept, an eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth. Matter of fact, it's mentioned three times in the Old Testament. Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, and Deuteronomy 19. So what is this concept, an eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth? What does that mean? Well, simply put, it required that punishment exactly matched the crime. That's the whole concept that it's trying to communicate. Uh, you know, it's the same idea that's carried in the expressions a tit for tat or quid, quid pro quo. And in both the Law of Moses and the Lex Talonis, this idea or this principle, an eye for an eye, it's given for two basic purposes. The reason that this law was in place was for two basic purposes. Number one, the first was to curb further crime. The reason they had this law was to curb further crime. It gave judges clear and a clear and just formula to dish out punishment to those who broke the law. We have this, fr this phrase today, if, if you did the crime, you do the time. And, and that's kind of what that was trying to do. It, it was there to, to curtail further crime. When a person is punished for his wrongdoing, it says in Deuteronomy 19, the rest will hear and be afraid and will never again do such an evil thing among you. You see, the reason that an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth, this, this concept this law of retaliation was so important was, first of all, it was to curb further crime. 
If you broke the law, you're going to be punished according to what you broke the law for. Your punishment matched your crime. The second purpose of this was to prevent excessive punishment based on personal vengeance and anger retaliation. Now when we think of an eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth, we might think, well, this sounds like a pretty savage legislation. But you know what? It was, it was fundamentally merciful because it tried to eliminate personal vengeance from the equation. It tried to eliminate personal vengeance. It reined in the, the vindictiveness of the proud man who wanted to seek vengeance at all costs. Now think about this in primitive times. Your, temp, your typical blood feud knew nothing of equality. Think of primitive times. If someone, say, two tribes are warring against each other, and it starts from someone trespassing on another tribe's property. Well, that person who trespassed on another tribe's property, that, that tribe retaliates by beating that person. Well, now the other tribe is, is disappointed because their tribe member was beaten. And so that tribe takes vengeance into their own hands, in their own hands, and they go kill a tribe member of the other tribe. And then that tribe's upset and they go kill some more tribe members of the other tribe. Can you see that? Uh, it escalates. It escalates. You see, this, this, this cycle of revenge is this cycle that just starts spinning out of control. And so the whole idea of an eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth was to prevent excessive punishment based on personal vengeance and retaliation. Punishment was to match but not exceed the harm done by the offense itself. And you see this concept, this law of retaliation, this uh, is the foundation for all of our justice. The whole system of civil and, and penal and international law is based on this principle that we find in the Old Testament. And so as we think about this law, it's important to realize that this just principle, it's a very important thing in our society. It was a just law because it matched punishment to offense. It was a merciful law because it limited the innate tendency of the human heart to strike back out of vengeance and seek revenge. And it was a beneficial law because it protected society by restraining wrongdoing. This is something that we're familiar with. It's, it's built into our justice system. It was a just law. However, as Jesus is talking to the Jews on that hillside on that day, we find out very quickly that the Jewish leaders took that just law and they perverted it. They took that just law and they perverted it. In those three Pentateuch accounts that I mentioned that you find an eye for an eye or tooth for tooth mentioned, Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, and Deuteronomy 19, it is important and, and significant to realize that all those accounts, when talking about an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth, it was talking to be used in a civil justice situation, in the courts, in, in, in the ruling uh, kind of judging body that, that was in place. It deals with God's provision for Israel's civil law. That's what it was talking about. 
However, the Jew, the Jewish leaders, the rabbis, took a little liberty with the scriptures. And they stretched that a little bit. They seemed to overlook the, that fact and somehow misinterpreted this on a personal level. And the, Jew, the Jewish rabbis perverted and twisted the Mosaic law, and according to their misinterpretation, each man was permitted, in effect, to be judge, jury, and executioner. If you were wrong personally, according to the Jewish rabbis, that you could take matters into your own hands. You could take matters into your own hands. Now, can you picture what of a problem that would possess in society? Because how you interpret something and how someone else interprets something is totally different. And it could lead to a very chaotic, lawless kind of society that justifies their actions based on a misinterpretation of God's law. God's law was turned into individual license. And, in, and civil justice was perverted to personal vengeance. Instead of properly acknowledging the law of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth as a limit on punishment, the Jewish leaders conveniently used it as a mandate for revenge. They used it as a mandate for revenge. And before we point the fingers at them and say, how could they be so misled? At times, we're guilty of doing the same thing. At times, we think of an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth, and we think that it, it means the same thing in our, in our society and culture. This view, this wrong view, this misinterpretation as from the Jewish rabbis have been carried down from generation to generation to generation. So now we have individuals taking law into their own hands and striking back, trying to get even or trying to get ahead. In no instance did the Old Testament allow an individual to take law into his own hands and apply it personally. What God gave as a restriction to civil courts, Jewish tradition had turned into personal license for revenge. And you know what? This is still another example of the self-centered, self-righteous way of the Pharisees and them making a shamble out of God's holy law. They took a just principle that God has given uh, to His people. Punishment fits the crime. It's to curb, it's, it, it's to curb a crime and, and, and to, to help develop a, a fair society. And they perverted it. They perverted it into to reducing it to if someone has hurt you or done wrong against you, you can get even at whatever the cost. And it was wrong. It was wrong. And so now we see in verse 39 that Jesus wants to address this whole issue with his people sitting there on the, on the hillside. And he starts off with the first part of verse 39 in chapter 5 of Matthew, and he says this, But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Do not resist an evil person. And in Jesus' perspective, he gives us two principles in responding to evil. And the first one was found in that first half of, of verse 39. Don't resist an evil person. In this command, do not resist an evil person, Jesus is rebutting the Pharisees' misinterpretation of an eye for an eye. And he forbids retaliation in personal relationships. 
Now, sometimes we read this verse and it says, do not resist an evil person. And we think that Jesus is talking about that we shouldn't respond to evil, that, that we should allow evil to take its course and take no stand against it. And that's not what Jesus is saying here. We know that Jesus took a stand against evil. We know that when he entered uh, the temple courts that day and saw the money changers making, making a mockery out of his father's house, we know that he took action. He just didn't idly stand by and let the evil continue. But he was a little upset, wasn't he? And he got busy, didn't he? He turned over some tables he was that upset because he didn't want that evil to continue. And you know what? And Jesus tells us that, that we're not supposed to idly sit by and allow evil to affect us. It says, it says in James and 1 Peter that we're supposed to resist the devil and his evil schemes, that we're not supposed to, to just follow along and just idly stand by and let him have a power or affect us in, in our decisions. But Jesus says we're supposed to resist the devil. So, so what he's saying here is he's saying, hey, don't be passive about evil and just sit back and watch it happen. But he's simply saying this. When he says do not resist, he simply means that we don't retaliate and seek revenge when someone does evil towards us and wants to harm us personally. That's what he's talking about. Jesus is trying to prepare his followers for the persecution that would come for following him. When others persecuted them and tried to do evil towards them, Jesus wanted his followers, he wanted believers to be free from personal resentment, from spitefulness, and from vengeance in their hearts and their minds. So when Jesus says, don't resist an evil person, he's, he's talking about, hey, don't retaliate. Don't harbor vengeance in your heart. That's wrong. Because that's going to lead to some bad choices. So Jesus says, if, if we're going to get this right, if we're going to, to truly understand uh, how we're supposed to live and, and how we're supposed to interact with one another, even when someone wrongs us, he first says, hey, don't retaliate. Don't, do not resist an evil person. Don't retaliate or seek to get revenge. And then in verses 39, the end of 39 through 42, he goes on and tells us another way that we're supposed to respond to evil. And it says this, If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if someone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Jesus tells us another way that we're supposed to respond to evil is we're supposed to respond to evil by doing good. We're supposed to respond to evil by doing good. We're not supposed to respond when someone does something to harm us with, with, with our natural kind of thought process, which is, you know what, you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. But Jesus says we respond as believers we respond to evil by doing good. And, and, and Jesus uses four, four practical examples from the first century to kind of communicate this, this concept of responding to evil by doing good. And the first one that we see in, there in, in the last half of verse 39 is, is when, how, do, how should we respond to an insult? And Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Turn the other cheek. Now, oftentimes we think that Jesus is talking about a physical altercation here. And really, he's not talking about a physical altercation. He's talking about a, a very traditional, calculated attack on one's dignity by insulting a person. That's what he's talking about. 
You know what? You could strike someone, someone any place on the, anywhere else on the body, and you could probably cause some more physical harm. But when you stroke, when you stroke someone on the face, it was considered an attack to his honor. It was considered a terrible indignity. It was considered that you're treating that person less than a, as less than a human. Now, when Jesus talks about striking a person on the right cheek, it's important to realize that, that in most of the case, most people are right-handed. Now, if you're left-handed today, please don't be offended to me. You know, your left-handed people are the only ones in the right mind. But, um, but most people are right-handed. And so when, when he was talking about being struck on the right cheek, think of, think of this picture. If you're right-handed and you were going to strike someone on the right cheek, what, what kind of slap was it? It was a backhanded slap. It was a backhanded slap. Now that's not a normal, that, that's, that's not a normal kind of movement that we normally do. Uh, he, he is talking about a backhanded slap, and any type of slap to the face was considered an insult. Matter of fact, r- rabbinic tradition uh, said that if you hit someone with the back of the hand, it was twice an insult than slapping someone with the palm of your hand. But you know what? If you want to hit someone with the back of your hand, you need to plan that out. That's a cold, that's a calculated uh, action of disrespect and deliberate disregard. It communicated that, that you thought that person that you just struck was inconsequential. They were a nobody. That's the kind of slap that, 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 that was. Now suppose this happened to you. One day you're going about your business and someone you know kind of come walks up, up to you and you're excited to see them and all of a sudden they unjustly slap you with the back of their hand. How would you respond in that situation? Your first instinct might be this. You slap me, I'm going to slap you. You know, what's good for you what's, is good for me too. And so, you know, if you're going to greet me like that, I'll, I'll extend the greeting right back to you. That's probably what I would do. You know, and, and the Jewish rabbis had a law that was based in, in their oral tradition found in the Mishnah that said, you know what, if someone slapped you in the face, you could take them to court. I mean, that was how bad of an insult that was. You could take them to court. And, and if they slapped you with the palm of their hand, you, they owed you 200 zuz, which was a form of money. But if they slapped you with the back of your hand, they owed you 400 zuz. So how would you respond if someone came up to you and slapped you with the back of their hand? You'd probably slap them back. But notice what Jesus says. Jesus is contrasting his system of righteous living with that of the Pharisees. And, and, he, and this is what he says, not only do you not strike them back, you don't take that person to court either. You don't just walk away. You don't go, you don't go to them when, when they slap you and say, hey, what in the world was that for? How does he say we're supposed to respond? You simply give them your other cheek. You offer your other cheek to them. That's a pretty amazing response. I don't know about you, but if, if you were slapped across the face like that, if I was slapped across the face like that, my blood would be boiling, and I'd want to do something about it. And Jesus says, just calmly offer him your other cheek. Turning the other cheek symbolizes the non-avenging, non-retaliatory, humble, and gentle spirit that is to characterize true believers in Jesus Christ.
That's how you respond to insult. You don't take law into your own hands and matters into your own hands and slap them back. You humbly respond and kindly respond by offering your other cheek. Jesus goes on in, in, in verse 40. He talks about responding to, to a civil suit. He says, let him have your cloak. Verse 40 says, if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now, the tunic here was, was mentioned as, as a type of shirt, or it was their kind of, their, their form of clothing. Uh, they didn't wear pants back then, so the tunic was this long kind of shirt that they wore. And their cloak was the outer garment that they wore. A cloak was something that kept them warm at night, and, and they slept in it, and, and they, it provided warmth and security. And that cloak or the outer robe was pretty essential in Palestine because it got pretty cool in the desert there. And so they needed that to keep them warm. It was an essential piece of their wardrobe. And while people might have had one or two tunics, they probably only had one cloak. And he's talking about if someone sues you for your cloak, tunic, give them your cloak also. What, what is he talking about? Why would someone sue someone for a piece of clothing? Well, under the Old Testament borrowing laws, a poor person would seek to borrow money from someone and he would need to give something as collateral. He would need to give something as collateral to, to, to make sure that he would pay that, that, that loan back. And so a person who was poor, they may not have a whole lot of things that were real valuable to give as collateral. So they would give their clothing as collateral. Now remember, I said that you know people only had maybe one or two tunics and one cloak. But even the Old Testament law understood that, hey, it gets cold at night. And so under Old Testament law, if you offered your cloak as collateral for a loan, that moneylender couldn't keep your cloak for those 30 days. What would happen was that you would give the moneylender your cloak in the morning and he would return it to you at night so you could sleep in it. So let's say this person came to you and, 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 and said, hey, I'd like to take a 30-day loan and I'm going to give you my cloak as collateral. And so what would happen is, is every morning that person would come and give you his cloak as collateral for that loan, and every night that you would go back and give that cloak back to that person so he could sleep with it. Now, you as the moneylender, you couldn't go into his house, you couldn't enter his house and try to get the cloak for yourself. He had to offer it to you. And that's how they, that's how they made arrangements to, to loan money. It's, I know it's kind of wild, and, and first of all, we're probably most of us are thinking 30 days. We're thinking our 30-year mortgage on our house, and... and and uh, 30 days seems like a short time, but, but that's just, just one of the ways that they did it. So what happens in this arrangement if one of the parties violated the arrangement? Then what would happen? What if the lender came, stood outside the house, and the person who borrowed money didn't come out and give him his cloak or tunic as, as collateral? What would happen then? Or what would happen if, if the, the person who lent the money thought that he repaid the whole loan? And he no longer had to go out and give his cloak back. What would happen then? Well, then you go to court. And the Jews, the Jewish leaders had a, had a whole system of, of laws that, that you could go to court and you could get that settled in the court. But notice Jesus' radical approach to that. Notice what he said. He doesn't say, hey, you know what? If this misunderstanding is, is there, don't sue the person back. 
He also says, you know, don't go to the courts to prove that you're correct and the other person is wrong. If the person that you loan money to says that, that you still owe him more money, don't just give him your tunic, give him your cloak as well. And what Jesus is saying, hey, you know what? You want to do everything in your power to protect your reputation. And so you need to make things right. And, and don't just give them your cloak, your, your, your cloak, but your, your tunic, but give them your cloak as well. Be willing to go the extra mile and offer that to make things right. Jesus again is raising the standard of living for believers compared to that of the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees would say, hey, just take it to court. Take it to court, battle it out, settle it out, and, and it'll be done with. And Jesus says, you know what? You need to live right with your brother. And so you need to make things right. And, and if he's asking for your tunic, give him your cloak too. Give him your cloak too. That's how you respond in that situation. In verse 41, we see Jesus gives us another example of how to respond to government control. If someone forced you to go one mile, go with them two miles. And the historical background of this situation is under Roman law, if the Romans occupied your country, they could force any citizen of that country to go alongside their soldiers and carry their gear, their pack, for one mile. That was the law. It was mandatory service. It was not popular. Matter of fact, it was humiliating. It was hated. And it was done grudgingly. And the Pharisees particularly despised this Roman law. Matter of fact, let's be, let, let's be clear that many of the Jewish leaders who despised the Roman occupation were waiting for the Messiah to come and overthrow the Roman occupation. That's the Messiah that they were hoping for. They were hoping for this Messiah to come and overthrow the Roman occupation, to set up Israel as an independent nation once again, strong and free, and to restore their national hopes. And so as Jesus talks about this, this idea of mandatory service, it must have been more and more upsetting to his audience because they hated this law. They hated this law. Now suppose a Roman soldier came to you and said, hey, you know what? I'm tired. Here's my pack. Here's all my supplies. Carry it for a mile. How would you respond? What would you do? Would you retaliate physically? Probably not a great idea. This is a Roman soldier. Uh, they're the best of the best. They're strong. They're brave. They're, they're trained in fighting. If you were to, re, to, to retaliate physically, you would lose pretty quickly. Uh, a beatdown would be coming, and it would be coming your way. Uh, it would not be a pretty sight. So would you, would you retaliate physically? Or would you retaliate verbally and then run for your life? I mean, w w would you tell them in no particular words that it's not going to happen? I don't care for you. I'll never carry your pack. And then run as fast as you can, hoping that he wouldn't catch you. Would you comply with the request and meet the legal requirement, but don't go any further? You're only going one mile, and that's it. Nothing further. And you do it complaining the whole way. That's probably what happened mostly in the, to, to the Jews who were in that situation. 
they calculated that mile to the exact point and they drug that stuff and the whole time under their breath they are complaining every step of the way. Notice what Jesus says. He teaches none of these. He says, go with them too. Generously and cheerfully go above and beyond the call of duty. Jesus again raises a standard of righteous living that he expects from his followers. And can you imagine if you were the one when a Roman soldier came to you and offered to, and told you to carry his pack a mile and you, you turned to him and said, hey, I'd be glad to do it. And you know what? I'll take it too. Can you imagine his response? He'd probably fall over. He'd probably think, what in the world is going on here? But what a powerful testimony. What a powerful, powerful testimony to that Roman soldier. Final example that, that Jesus shares here is, is, is giving to, to those in need. And he says in verse 42, Give to the one who asks you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. The Old Testament has strong ethic of encouraging gifts and loans from fellow believers to other fellow believers in need. It was to be done willfully and cheerfully. And the Pharisees, you know, they, they had a, this idea too. They encouraged that you give and, and help other people out, but uh, they just tacked on, just, just put some interest on top of it. But, you know, the Old Testament said, hey, we're supposed to give and help those in need and, and, and not worry about interest and things like that. We're supposed to help our brother and sister in Christ. Now, the implication here is that the person who asks has a genuine need and that we have the resources to help him. And if that's the case, that we should generously respond. It's important to realize that we're not required to respond to every foolish, selfish request made of us, though. Because sometimes, sometimes to give a person what he wants but does not need does him more of a disservice. It does him more of a disservice than really help him out. It's doing him more harm than good. But, but Jesus is saying to his believers, hey, you know what? If you have the opportunity, if you have the resources to help someone in need, to help your fellow brother in need, you know what? You need to take that, you need to take that opportunity and do it. You need to do that. You know, as Christians, we often forget this notion that everything we have is not ours. Everything we have comes from God, and he's given it to us, and we're supposed to be his stewards. And so when someone comes to us and says, you know what, hey, I have a need, could you help me out? He's not asking us for our stuff. He's asking us to use the resources, God's resources that he's given us, to reach out and help that person. Jesus is raising the standard of living by encouraging us to lovingly and generously help out those in need. That if we know someone who has a need, someone that's hurting, to be active, to do something about it. Just don't sit there and watch it and, and, and say, well, you know, maybe, maybe something will happen. Jesus says, everything that I have, I have given you. It's not yours, it's mine, and you're stewards of it. And, and as stewards of it, if someone, if a brother and sister are in need, you need to help them out. If you have the resources to do it, you need to help them out. And that's what he's telling us. You see, in this, in this passage here, really what, what he's talking about, he's talking about how do we retaliate in situations? How do we respond to those 
who, who maybe are, are in need around us or those who, who even do, do evil towards us. And in conclusion, uh, come with just a few things to take away here. Unforgiving retaliation. Unforgiving retaliation in word, thought, attitudes, and actions has no place in society at large and even less place among those who belong to Christ. You know what, this week I was thinking a little bit about this statement. And a lot of times I think that I'm a pretty calm person. I'm pretty, pretty even keeled. It doesn't take much to get me, you know, it takes a lot to get me wound up and, and I'm pretty even keeled. I don't raise my voice a whole lot. I don't, you know, I, I don't respond, you know, radically or anything like that. And so as I was going through this this week, I thought, you know, I don't really have a problem with retaliation. And then Jesus kind of slapped me upside the head with the Holy Spirit and said, yeah, you do. You see, I might not respond in my actions, but you know what? I retaliate in my thoughts. I retaliate in my words. And I retaliate in my attitudes. You know, if someone hurts me or harms me or does something uh, that, that I think is wrong to me, it affects the way that I think about them. And I have to be honest that I don't really think a whole lot about them when that happens. I don't have real positive thoughts to think about them. It affects my attitude towards that person. I'm not really looking forward to being around that person. Matter of fact, I'll do everything to avoid that person. And you know what? It affects my words. Because if I have a tendency maybe to share what happened with someone else and talk about that person in my words. And as I was thinking this week, I was, God was really convicting me and saying, you know what, you may not re retaliate and hit the person or anything like that, but you retaliate, Jonathan. That's wrong. And see, the problem is when we, when we start to think, uh, when, our, when we start to think bad and our, and our attitude's bad and, and even our, uh, our talk is bad about a person, eventually it's going to lead to an action. I mean, eventually we're going we're gonna to respond physically too. And that's terrible. And that's me. And if I had to venture a guess, that's some of you sitting here today too. We may not respond physically, but man, when someone hurts us, they are as good as dead to us in our mind. We don't want anything to do with them. And our attitudes is wrong towards that person. Unforgiving retaliation has no place in society at large and even less place among those who believe in Jesus Christ. And the final thing, how we respond to retaliation is very simply this. As Christians, we are called to overcome evil with good. We're called to overcome evil with good. It says in Romans 12, 17 to 21, don't repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Don't take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, over, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We read that passage time and time and time again. And as many times as we read it, we don't often see examples of that. 
And I want to close with a little video clip of an example of that. And one of the most powerful examples of that that I've ever seen in my life. Happened in, and, and I got to experience this personally in 2002 at a concert in Hershey, Pennsylvania. And I got to see one of the most powerful displays of someone, of a believer in Jesus Christ, not seeking out retaliation, but seeking to overcome evil with good. And I just want to play a six-minute video clip for you uh, of just the testimony that was shared at that concert. And I just want you to follow along and just listen to this amazing story of overcoming evil with good. To you, Mr. Steve Saint. It was just over a month ago that I was watching television on the anniversary of September 11th. The program I was watching dealt with the terrible trauma that is being faced by young children who lost parents in that terrible tragedy. And you know, as I watched that program, I couldn't help but remember when I was a little boy the night that my mom took me into her room to tell me that my dad had been killed and that he would never be able to come home and live with us again. And that could have been my tragedy, except that my mom was a woman of faith and she went on to explain to me that she was sure that even this terrible thing that was happening to us was part of God's plan and that she believed someday we would know that for sure. And since then I've found out for myself that God never wastes a hurt if we'll let him write his story with our lives. And today I know that both of those are true because the very people who brutally killed my dad and Roger and Pete and Ed and Jim are like family to me. And one of those very men who speared my dad to death and then threw his body into the river to be eaten by the fish and turtles, just a couple years later when I went in to live with the people, and my Aunt Rachel, that man made it clear to me that he wanted me to be like his own son. And when he would take his boys out into the jungles to teach them to hunt with a blowgun and to spear larger animals and to get fish in the river, he taught me the same thing so that I could go on living there with him and his people. And I've had the chance to take Steve and his boys and some of this great band and one of their sons down to the jungles with me to introduce them to my tribal family and especially to grandfather. And they've gotten to see for themselves what God can do to reconcile people to each other if we let him write the story and that he can transform any life that is willing to let him. Two years ago, Grandfather and I were at our family home in Florida on our way to speak at a conference in Europe. And while we were there, my 20-year-old and only daughter came home. She'd been traveling around the country and around the world with a Christian singing group for a year. It seemed like it had been forever, and we were so excited that Stephanie was coming home. So we all got together and we went down to the Orlando International Airport to welcome her and just so that she would know and to embarrass her a little bit, we made signs, Welcome Home, Steph. And Grandfather can't read. 
So he took his sign, had it upside down, and was jumping up and down. He wanted Stephanie to know how happy he was that she was home. And then we went home, and we were having this wonderful welcome home party with our family and a few close friends. And during that party, I passed Stephanie in the hall. She was almost as tall as I was, and she put her long arms around me and gave me a hug and said, Pop, I love you. And I'm telling you, just for an instant, I think I saw and felt what God must see and feel when his children love him back. And then a few minutes later, Jenny came to me and she whispered, Hey, come back with me to Steph's room. I thought it was a conspiracy to get Steph all to ourselves, and so we went back to her room. But it turned out that Stephanie had a headache and wanted me to pray. So as Jenny rocked Steph, I put my arms around both of them and prayed that God would take the pain away. And you know what? He did. But he didn't follow my script. And as Jenny, pray, as Jenny rocked Stephanie and I prayed, she had a massive cerebral hemorrhage and died. I didn't know what was going on, so I called 911 and the ambulance came and we rushed Stephanie down to the nearest hospital. And just a few minutes after we got there, grandfather came with our boys behind. And when he came into the emergency room, he was just desperate to protect his granddaughter from these people who had rushed into our home and dragged his granddaughter away. But when I told him that these things that they were doing, putting needles in her arm and a tube down her throat, weren't meant to harm her and that they hadn't caused this problem, then he grabbed me again, only there was a different expression on his face, and he almost looked excited, and he said, Baba, Baba, using my tribal name, now I see this well. Don't you realize God himself is doing this, taking stars, he called Stephanie, to live in his place. And then he called to the staff there in the emergency room. He said, People, being a God follower, I'm going to die soon, and I too am going to God's place. And if you'll just follow God's trail like Stephanie and I have been, then when you come there, Nemo and I will be waiting to greet you in God's place. I have to tell you, it was a, it was a hard thing for me to get my faith around what grandfather was saying. And isn't it incredible that in the hour of my greatest agony, God used the very man who had killed my father to encourage me to go on believing that he did have a plan and that even this excruciating hurt that I was feeling would somehow not be wasted as God continued to write his story in my life. And so would you welcome one of my dearest friends in the whole world and your brother in Christ, Mame, Grandfather Minkai. It's an amazing story. Amazing story of someone who didn't respond evil for evil, but responded to evil with good. And it's just an amazing story. And that, that little clip doesn't do it justice. And, and I mean, you've read the stories, and, and, and you may have even seen the documentary or even the film that they made out of it. But what a powerful, powerful, powerful example of what we as believers, how we're supposed to live. Too often we want to retaliate. But God says, hey, you know what? Overcome evil with good. And isn't it amazing that the man who killed Steve's dad 
The man who killed Steve's dad, not only did they extend goodwill to him, and not only did he have a chance, Minkai have a chance to become a believer, but in Steve's hour of need, the man who killed his dad was his rock. And the only way that that could happen, it's only a God thing. And it's because of those ladies, those wives of the slain missionaries, they didn't retaliate. They went back. They went back. They went back to reach out and, and they didn't do evil for evil. They, they conquered evil with good. And we may never be in a situation like that. That's pretty extreme. And that's, you know, I, I hear that story and I'm like, that guy is Steve, you know, he's this scrawny little kind of guy, but he is a giant in the faith because because of his heart, because of the heart that God gave him. And we may never be faced with a situation like that, but you know what? Each and every day, we're faced with the choice. Do we retaliate and get even? Or do we respond to evil by doing good? It's my hope and my prayer that God would help me and help you to be a little bit more like Steve and respond to evil with good. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for just the challenge that you've given us to to be different, to go the extra mile, to uh, to not be like the world around us, but to, to express your love, your care uh, to those around us, even those who hurt us. And Lord, we, you know that in our sinful nature, when someone hurts us, when someone wrongs us, the thing that we so much want to do is retaliate. We want to get even. Whether it's through our actions or our words or our attitudes or or our thoughts, Lord. And, and Lord, today we come to you and we say, we're wrong. That's wrong. Forgive us for that. And today we come to you, God, as, as, as your children, and we say, give us, give us your heart. Give us, fill our hearts with your love so much that, that when those situations arise, that we can look above the, and beyond the offense and extend your grace and your love to those who may have hurt us. Father, really, that's, uh, that's what you're calling us to. That's what Jesus is saying about retaliation. He's saying, as Christians, we're not supposed to be doormats and just sit back and idly watch, but he wants us to actively respond to evil. And it's not to get even, it's not to, to prove that we're right, but we actively respond by choosing to forgive and choosing to love and choosing to do good to those who meant to harm us. Father, we can't do this in and of our own strength. You know we'll fail. But today we ask you that the power of your Holy Spirit as we go through our week this week, you would help us to do that. Help us to overcome evil with good. In Jesus' name, amen.